Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And it's not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are, are one body, for we all share one loaf. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean then that food sacrificed to an idol is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. This is the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Thank you, Tim. All right. All right. Well, it's good to have you all here this morning. Uh, before we get into the message, I just wanted to show you guys a couple of highlights from our men's trip this weekend. We, uh, Ashley and I got back on Tuesday. Well, we got back on Monday, but we took Tuesday off as well. Uh, and then we're back in the office on Wednesday, and then we were off to Backbone State Park where we took some guys to the, to the campground. So I wanted to give you an update. Is that all right? Of, of, if you're a man and, and you didn't come of what you missed, Tim Maletta. Uh, so this is our, uh, this is a beautiful stream, right? Beautiful stream. Uh, uh, all right, next picture. This is Grant's face obscured by a tree. He didn't want, he looks creepy, but he's very nice. Talk to him after church. And then this is Avery in a tree. So uh, all, all in all, so all in all, you can see we had a very fun time. Uh, uh, our annual men's camping trip is a must, all right? So if you're available next year, we'll do it again, again in July, all right? And maybe, if you're lucky, we'll put you in a tree, all right? Uh, it rained uh, before we showed up, while we were in our tent sleeping, uh, but it, the, most of the part was nice. And so I am calling this year uh, of, the men's camp, of the Grace Community Men's Camping Trip. We came, it rained, we conquered. All right. All right, all right. You can go back to the, yep, perfect. All right, so in the mid-2000s, which for some of you, you were, what, five? Uh, I was living uh, in Minneapolis studying at seminary, and it was also a pretty difficult time in my life, actually. Uh, I felt kind of unmoored. Uh, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I didn't know if I wanted to go into the ministry or if I wanted to be a teacher uh, I had to make all new friends for the first time in my life. I moved to a place where I didn't know anybody. I was in love with somebody that I assumed was just never going uh, to be in love with me again. FYI, that one worked out. Uh, <laughs> in short, I was pretty depressed, actually. I was pretty depressed. I really could not get a grip on my life and was surprised uh, that I, didn't, I, I couldn't do it, right? I was, it was just a struggle for me. I didn't know what my life was supposed to look like. I didn't know what I was supposed to do, and that caused a lot of tension in my heart. I loved Jesus. I never walked away from Jesus, but at the time, Jesus felt distant from me. Have any of you ever had times in your life like that? Like he was more a bunch of ideas in some books that I was reading rather than a real person. And it was at this time that I started attending a little Lutheran church uh, near the U of M campus 
on Sunday nights. They had church on Sunday nights. Now, I've never really thought about being a Lutheran pastor. I've never gone consistently to Lutheran churches, but I had some friends that were going to that church, and I will say this honestly, I really needed friends, so I was going wherever my friends were going, and it was, it was a cool little church, right? It was filled with a bunch of hipsters who wrote their own worship songs. They had a cardboard cutout of Jean-Luc Picard on the stage for some reason. I don't know why they did that. But they also did this other thing. Uh, They, like many Christian churches, received communion every time they met together as a church. Every every Sunday they received communion. And in fact, communion was, they built it as the center point of their service. Now, I can't remember, remember a single sermon I heard at that church, and I can't remember a song that we sung at that church. But I do remember nearly every week walking up to that, that table with those other followers of Jesus and feeling oftentimes for the first time in, a, in that entire week like God was with me, like God was with me. The communion table, that, that ritual was like this little flash of divine light in my otherwise gray life at the time. The communion table uh, served that place for me. And for me, this was really the first time I ever came uh, to try and understand what communion was, right? Because in my tradition growing up, it was just a ritual that we did once a month, right? It it was kind of peripheral to the things that we did on on most Sundays. It wasn't a central component of what we did. But it was not until I needed a tangible, literally touchable, right, practice that helped me reconnect to the source of my life, Jesus, that I really came to appreciate this thing we call communion, that I came to really appreciate what it was. And that experience got me thinking. It got me thinking when I was in seminary. What is this ritual we call communion? What is it? And because in the scriptures, communion is really closely associated with another ritual, which is baptism, what is baptism all about as well? I started kind of mulling these ideas over in my head and turning to the scriptures and trying to figure out what, what do they mean? What are they all about? What, why do we do them? Why do we, why, do we, why do we do these rituals? And so this week, we're continuing our sermon series we're calling CORE, which is all about the beliefs that make our church, Grace Community, distinct. And today, I want to talk a little bit about what I learned about both communion and baptism, these historic rituals of the church and what significance they hold for us. Uh, And I also want to kind of open the scriptures with us, and I'll spend quite a bit of time in our teaching text for today, uh, hoping to show you uh, how these ancient practices functioned uh, in the early church, what they, what, what significance they served. All right? All right. So, before we hop into the teaching text this morning, I do want to step back and give us a little context uh, so that we can really understand what we are talking about when we talk about communion and baptism, because there's a lot of uh, ideas floating around out there about these two things, and there's a lot of words, very often some very religious words that are out and about, about Uh, communion and baptism. And one of the words you need to understand if you're really going to come to a a kind of thorough understanding of what communion and baptism is the word sacrament. Can you say sacrament? Wonderful. I very rarely do that, but I understand why pastors do that a lot because it feels very good. Uh, Now, a sacrament is a very, very religious word, isn't it? It's a very religious word. I can't really think of a non-religious context where we ever use the word sacrament. Can you? Probably not. Uh, 
there was a Catholic elementary school across the street from my elementary school. I went to Bryant Elementary School. I was a Bryant Bear uh, from kinder for oh, actually for only one year because my parents moved to Sioux City. But across the street from Bryant Elementary School was the Catholic Elementary School, and that Catholic Elementary School was called Blessed Sacrament. We just called it BS, <laughs> which I don't. At the time, I did not know what was. I was just a little kid. Uh, but that's what we called it. But when we think of the word sacrament, we usually think of Catholicism, don't we? Because they like to throw the word sacrament a lot. And in fact, uh, Catholics have seven, they say they have seven sacraments, which are baptism, confirmation, Eucharist or communion, a penance, which we call confession, anointing of the sick, marriage, and the priesthood. These are their seven sacraments. And when they say that they have these things called sacraments, they have these seven sacraments, what they mean is that these are activities that God has especially blessed, blessed in a special way, to be a kind of means of grace, a means of His grace in in the world. So you can kind of think of a sacrament as a holy highway, right? It's like the quickest way for God's grace to get to people. This is what the idea is communicated. Uh, This is what Christians who are Catholic think. So, so they believe that God is everywhere, but He is especially present and has determined to be especially present in these seven sacraments, all right? But around uh, the time of the Reformation, Christians began to ask some questions about this idea of, of a sacrament. What is a sacrament? How does it function? Uh, should, we, should we think of things in this sacramental way? And they began to take issue with the sacraments, primarily because they said that the sacraments were kind of bound up in the hierarchy or in the leadership of the church in a way that made them uh, almost manipulative. And they also began to question what was or was was not a sacrament, right? So they they started uh, kind of weeding through some of those seven sacraments and trying to determine what is special here and what is maybe uh, normal. Does that make sense? So, uh, and frankly, there were so many, there was so much abuse and there was so much baggage around the idea of sacrament that as uh, from the Reformation on, as Christians began to think about these ideas more and more and look at the scriptures more and more, what they began to determine uh, for themselves is that uh, some, some of the sacraments started kind of getting thrown out of that list of seven. And fast forward to our day, to, to kind of Protestant evangelicalism, and evangelicalism, evangelicals decided, we don't really even like this word sacrament. It's, it, it, for them, it doesn't quite communicate uh, this idea of, they don't, evangelicals didn't want to embrace this idea that there was a one or two special highways of God's grace, Right? Because evangelicals believed that God's grace is open and available to everyone through the person of Jesus, right? To which we say amen. We think that's correct. Jesus is how we get the fullness of God's grace in our lives. But evangelicals also ran into a little problem. Because Jesus did seem also to institute these two particular practices or rituals that were special in some way, right? And that was the ritual of communion and the ritual of baptism. And so, evangelicals, people, and I don't know who these evangelical people are, but, you know, they're important. They make decisions. Uh, Had to come up with a word that meant important, but didn't communicate the more kind of Catholic idea of sacrament along with it. And the word that they came up with was, and you may have heard this word, and you may have not heard this word within a religious context, but the word they came up with was 
ordinance. We sure went the other way with that one, didn't we? From sacrament, this word that is totally and completely religious, to ordinance, a word that we use to describe how wide your egress window needs to be, right? A city ordinance is just a rule you have to follow so that you don't get fined, right? This is what an ordinance is. And I think the word ordinance, while I understand why we use it, right, I I get that, takes a little bit of the significance of what communion and baptism are away. I think I think we might have gone too far a little bit with our word ordinance. So much so now that by uh, that these practices within the within the evangelical church that uh, we see, particularly in modern America, can easily these these practices of baptism and communion can easily become a little bit devalued, kind of pushed to the margins of what we do. Uh, We do them right. We say that they're important, we carry them out, but in the words of one of our modern-day poets, Marshawn Lynch, I'm just here so that I don't get fined, right? So you guys don't even know that. Anyways, <laughs> Say, saying something is an ordinance does not totally, ex- but here's the problem, right? Saying something is an ordinance doesn't totally explain what it is. Whoa, we just, oh, okay. Uh, all right. It uh, doesn't totally explain what it is, right? Saying something in order, we don't really understand what it is or how it functions in our lives. What's going on when I receive communion or I get baptized? What is actually happening? Sacrament communicates the idea, right, a little bit more fully in a religious sense. But ordinance, what's actually happening here? So today I kind of want to answer that question by looking at the scriptures to see what the early church really believed Uh, these two practices of baptism and communion are, so that we can know for our communion how they function, how they should work for us. Does this make sense? And so, this morning we want to turn uh, in your Bibles, if you have them, to 1 Corinthians 10, verses 14 through 21. We're going to stay in the text a lot today. So, if you don't have a Bible, you can grab one from under the seat in front of you. It might be helpful to keep it open and refer back to it from time to time. Um, but I'm just going to reread our teaching text for today uh, so it's on the top of our minds, and then we'll hop in. All right? All right. All right. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 14 through 21 says, Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we, who are many, are one body, for we all share that one loaf. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Uh, Do I mean that that food sacrifice to an idol is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And do I not want you to participate with, and I do not want you to participate in demons. You, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. So, in order to understand what Paul is saying here, we kind of got to back into the text a little bit and understand that Paul is addressing uh, Corinthians, right? He's, this is the book of 1 Corinthians, and he is addressing a particular group of Christians living in the city of Corinth. And one of the biggest problems in this day, one of the things that the church bumped into the most, 
then the, and that you, you can pick up on it when you read this passage, but if you read uh, the whole chapter, actually a couple chapters, you really get a clear picture of it. What he's addressing here is idolatry that it's found its way into the church, what he calls idolatry. But it's clear from the context of, this, of these few chapters that this idolatry is taking the form of Christians within the Corinthian church uh, going to a certain kind of ancient ritualistic uh, banquet. They're going to banquets that, are, that Paul calls idolatry. Now, this is interesting, isn't it? Because very, but you have to understand that very often in the ancient world, temples, temples to gods, would throw these big parties or banquets where there was a lot of partying and there was a lot of eating. And these parties were how worshipers participated with um, the worship of a god or a goddess. They, they, they went to, they didn't really have church in the same sense that we have, but they did throw some pretty raucous parties. But you, what you also need to understand, and this is a little different from our day, is that these gatherings were also very closely associated with the financial systems of the day, because very often the temples were like banks as well. And the temples were places where you would meet, right? They were the places where you would rub shoulders. They were the places where you would do business, right? They, they kind of served as this multiple, on multiple levels. It was a kind of like a mix between a religious event and a business networking event, if you will. So if you didn't go to the, one of these banquets, you were also hurting yourself financially, right? So there was some tension there. It was kind of like going to a Rotary Club meeting, right? Really. Only if at the Rotary Club meeting, you sacrificed an idol to a god or to a goddess and then got really drunk and ate that sacrifice and then probably went on later in the night to make some mistakes with your body, right? This, this, nobody should go to that type of Rotary Club meeting. Uh, this, is, this is kind of what it was like, if you think about it. And so Paul is addressing this type of abuse, and there are clearly Christians within the Corinthian church that are attending these Rotary Club banquet meetings. And so Paul says, specifically in verse 14, and I think we have it on the uh, flee from idolatry, right? And he, he functionally yells it in the text. He, uh, if you were reading this in Greek, it would be in all caps, right? He actually yells it. Uh, he says that they are not to be going to this party, these parties, and he begins to use a kind of interesting language when he's talking about this. And what he says is they're not to be breaking that bread or drinking those cups, Right? This is kind of what he says, because he says to the church, you already break bread and drink a cup, right? And he's talking about communion. And he says, by, by receiving communion together as, as the body, as the church, in the community of Jesus followers, and these are his words, now, these are his words, not mine, right? These are not Catholic or Protestant or evangelical words. These are Bible words that Paul says here. By receiving communion together, these Christians literally participate in the blood and body of Jesus Christ. Read it for yourself. This is what he says. Okay, wow. That seems significant, doesn't it? And Paul seems to think that this is a very, very big deal, that it's significant, so much so that in verse 21, he gets really explicit, and he says this in verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. 
He is, and when he says the table of demons, he is talking about the idol worship taking place at the ancient Rotary Club demon banquet. <laughs> that is what he's talking about there. Paul seems to believe that communion is the way that Christians determine who they are and connect or commune with Jesus, right? This seems to be what he's saying here. In a very real way, it is how we worship Jesus and participate in Jesus' death on the cross. In short, there is something happening here, isn't there? There's something happening here that is, I think, slightly more significant than maybe the word ordinance communicates. But with one caveat, I think we need to put over top of it. Notice that baptism and communion, well, he's not speaking about baptism here, but communion specifically uh, is not made important or spiritual by religious rites or by a priest or by the church authority. That seems to not play in. It seems to be the gathering together of the body and the receiving of communion. Rather, this communion event, this table of the Lord that he's talking about is made effective in in the lives of the church and in our lives not by a priest, not by a pastor, not by church authority, but by Jesus himself. In our church, we don't think that God is mysteriously present in the bread and the cup uh, or in in the communion juice, if you will, uh, like some churches uh, tend to believe. If If you remember Western Civ in high school, you probably talked a little bit about this because they literally fought wars in Europe about these two words, transubstantiation and consubstantiation. They're two uh, kind of philosophical views about what is happening when you receive communion. Is, God's, is Jesus' body and blood literally present in the cup or uh, in, in the bread? You know, I went, to a, uh, I went to a lot of different churches apparently when I was in Minneapolis, but I went to an Orthodox church because I had a friend that was converting to uh, Antiochian Orthodoxy. And uh, so I went to church with him, yeah. And, uh, and we were, we were, I wasn't allowed to take communion at uh, an Orthodox church, but they were receiving communion like they do every week. And uh, as the priest was walking kind of down the center aisle, he spilled the, he spilled the cup, he spilled the communion wine on the floor. And I kid you not, for 15 minutes, these guys got down on the floor with, um, with what amounted to like um, Christian or sacred handkerchiefs and kind of tried to mop up the communion juice, or not the communion juice, wine. It was real wine. Uh, they don't mess around. And, uh, <laughs> and so they're like, for 15 minutes, we're just sitting here, you know, kind of watching these guys mop it up because they believe that, that in the cup and uh, in, the, in, the, in the bread is something mystical has happened and that God's body and blood have actually kind of infused that reality. We don't necessarily think that, Right. We don't think that, but we think that Jesus is specially or specifically present with us when two or three are gathered in his name, right? And that God acts in a special way in communion and in, in baptism in that same way, in participation with us through his Holy Spirit, right? Uh, these activities are not meant to simply communicate kind of past events or to commemorate past events, but that God... Uh, by His Holy Spirit, is working with us as the gathered body in and around communion to help us know and love Jesus more. This is what we believe. Something very special occurs, something very special occurs, whether you, whether you feel it or not. When, whenever the church gathers together and we gather around the table or somebody is dunked under the water, something really special occurs. God is actually 
acting in those moments. He's acting with us in those moments. Like I said, whether you feel it or not, but God has promised, Jesus has promised to be present with us in those moments as long as we are open and available to him. It's for this reason that when we take uh, communion and when we uh, baptize someone seriously, uh, we, are not, we, don't, we don't say at this church that they're simply external acts that symbolize an internal transformation, right? That I've, I've been redeemed by Jesus, and so I receive communion as just kind of an external act. Or I am baptized because I was saved by God, and this baptism is just symbolically representing my salvation. No. We say that there is something slightly more significant happening there, that God, via His Holy Spirit, in the gathered church, is at work in those moments. Uh, mysteriously, yes, we don't have all of the context for what he is actually doing there, but there is something significant happening there. This is why baptism is important, right? This is why communion is important, and this is why we receive it. We're not, say, we're not elevating it to the level of sacrament necessarily, but we are saying that there is something important occurring there. Does that make sense? Uh, we don't want to just say that these are just um, kind of Christian rituals that we can kind of just kick out the door because what really matters is uh, only my relationship with God by myself, right? No, Christians have always believed that when we gather together around these sacred practices that God honors that in the same way that he honors uh, when two or three are gathered together, in the same way that he honors uh, his, his promises to be with us through the storm, right? He has promised to be specially with us in these and these two Christian rituals of both baptism and communion. Does this make sense? People tracking? Good, good, good. God is working in, through, and around us to help us love Jesus more. And baptism and communion are two of the ways that God has uh, given us to actually do that well, to do that well. So, because I'm a preacher for the rest of our time this morning, I want to give you three things, or three points even, that will help you uh, kind of understand a little bit better what communion and baptism are, okay? Because I think that uh, in our church, uh, it, this happens a lot in evangelical churches. We understand that we don't have this, the same view maybe as certain high church traditions, but we uh, don't, but we don't know necessarily how to locate communion and baptism within our, uh, our, within our religious framework, and we don't always know how the scriptures talk about them necessarily. And so I just want to give you three quick points to kind of help us uh, understand what they are, and then at the end of service, uh, we're going to come to the table together. So as a, uh, as a way of really enacting our faith together and walking this out. All right? All right. So, the first thing I want to say this morning is that baptism and communion are how we live the story of Jesus instead of the story of the world. They help us live the story of Jesus. So, the Corinthians in this passage that we looked at earlier are flirting with idols, eating feasts in temples to foreign gods. But uh, particularly, these feasts that they were uh, going to were really kind, it's kind of, they were kind of like a living story. Uh, in those cultures, these feasts were how people told the story of the gods or the god or the goddesses that they were worshiping, and they told this. And by going to these feasts, people were kind of lived into their these stories. They kind of reenacted the story, right? And everybody knows that if you spend enough time with a certain type of story running through your brain, you'll begin to bring that story into you, and it'll begin to affect the way you live, right? So. 
and unsurprisingly, this is what is happening with uh, the Corinthian church. Uh, the, the church is be going to these banquets, and they're beginning to live the story of the Corinthian culture rather than living the story of the kingdom of God that Jesus wants them to live. And Paul says that uh, they don't need to go to these banquets because they already have their own banquet that tells the story of the kingdom of God and the good life that Jesus wants for them in, at the communion table. And by enacting this, by actually celebrating communion together, they are, in a sense, retelling the story of Jesus' death and resurrection anew, right? So they are retelling the story, and they are bringing the story into their hearts and into their minds, and it, and it teaches them how to live as Jesus followers. This is, what Paul, this is why Paul uh, wants us to celebrate communion, because it teaches us the story of Jesus rather than the story of the world. You know, recently I found myself daydreaming a lot about winning the lottery. Did anybody else do this? I don't know. Uh, you know, that, that story I tell myself about winning the lottery is kind of out in the culture, isn't it, right? It's a story that I tell myself that if I, just, if I just win a bunch of money, my life will be better, right? But that's not a true story. You know what I mean? It's a, it's a story that many of us believe, but it's not a true story. In our day, one of the most prominent leisure activities... Uh, in the age of Netflix is binge-watching television, right? Have you ever had a conversation with somebody and they're like, what are you going to do today? And it's a Saturday something, and they're like, I'm going to watch three seasons of one show, right? And just totally like slack-jawed, maybe I'll have chips next to me, but I'm just going to watch it. I'm not going to remember anything the next day, but I'm just going to watch the all three seasons of Sherlock Holmes or whatever, right? This... Uh, I'm not, I'm not saying watching television is a bad thing, but what I am saying is that for a whole day, you're going to go live a story that forms you in a way that might not be the best way to be formed. That's all I'm saying. Whether it's good or not, you might, you might find yourself after that thing wanting things that maybe are not in line with the kingdom of God, right? Because we all have stories that we live that tell us what, that, that communicate to our hearts what we actually want. And Paul is saying to these Corinthian Christians, you're going to these feasts, you're participating in these rituals, you're walking out these, uh, these religious formula formulations, you're living these pagan stories, and these things are actually changing you, right? And unsurprisingly, because you're doing this, it's changing the way you act, and he's saying that to the Corinthians that they don't need to participate in these feasts. They don't need to participate in these stories because they already have a feast. They already have a story. They already have uh, the, the story of the kingdom of God embodied in the person of Jesus and his death and resurrection and soon coming. They have the story that they live out when they receive uh, uh, communion together, when they come to the Lord's table together. And that is the story that they are supposed to have their lives hinge on, not the story of Sherlock Holmes, not the story of winning uh, $3 million and, uh, and having the good life, not the story of going 
to the Rotary Club Demon Feast and that where everything is great and you get to do whatever you want, right? The story that the Corinthians are being called to hinge their life on is the story of the kingdom of God embodied in the person of Jesus. And Paul says that the communion table is how we, as a body, enact this story together. Does that make sense? It teaches us how to live it well. This is what communion does. So that's number one. Number two, communion and baptism, and this one's going to be brief, but communion and baptism are community-making. Communion and baptism are community-making. He says in verse 17, Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body. Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body. uh, For we all share from one loaf, right? Believers uh, in the early church believed this. They believed that uh, communion was one of the primary examples of their unity that they showed whenever they gathered together. The word in Greek is koinonia, or fellowship. It was this way that they displayed and strengthened their participation with the whole body of Christ together. Because when they, when they got up and they received the Lord's table together, it was the sign of unity. It was the sign of togetherness. And it was the sign that everyone is the same at the table. You know, in the, in the Greco-Roman world, there was a stratification in society, right? There was certain people who were rich or had power or had authority, and they, they were more important, and they sat on one side of the table in, in, in the cultural setting. And then add, uh, if you were a servant or a slave or you were a woman or a child, you sat at another side of the table, and there were all these different levels of people, Right? You, you, we run into this when we see Jesus talking about uh, when you invite uh, people to your, to your parties, give the seat of authority or give the seat of honor to the least of these, right? Jesus gives this commandment because he's kind of trying to turn over this, this, these cultural assumptions about what, how you sit when you have a meal. But the table of the Lord, uh, the communion meal, was this table where everyone was the same. There was no, there was no high or low There was no rich or poor. There was no important or unimportant. There was no uh, royalty or non-royalty. Everybody was the same, and everybody was invited. We have stories in the New New Testament of both uh, slaveholders and slaves or household servants uh, being equal at the table, right? When they came in, they might have certain... They might have certain roles at home, but when they come to the church, Paul says, you are brothers and sisters. You are the same right? At the table, the table is this leveling field where everyone becomes the same. And regardless of what we bring into the place, regardless of how, uh, of how good or bad we think we are, the table is the level playing field of the kingdom of God where everyone, regardless of who you are or what you've done or where you've come from or how religious you think you are or are not, are, uh, in this place, the table is open and available to you so you can come and be a part of this community, and receive the body and the blood of Jesus with the church. It's community-making. The table is community-making, if the band could come up. So that's number two. Number three, and the third thing I think communion and baptism are, uh, are physical practices or physical signs. And I think that humans need physical signs or physical uh, practices, physically ways to worship God. We, we need ways that we can physically enact our worship to God. Maybe you're in this place today and you couldn't sing. 
you're loaded down, you're worried. Something is uh, taking over your mind, right? Maybe you're sitting in these, this, this room today, and you can barely hear what I'm saying, right? Because you, you can't focus. Maybe you're depressed. Maybe there's something taking your energy. Maybe there's, maybe there's just a distraction in your life, whatever it may be. But my question to you this morning, no matter how hard your life is, no matter, no matter what you're dealing with, and I know it's significant, my question this morning is, do your legs work? Because you, you can come to the table with us. And possibly, as you come to the table, you can muster just enough faith to believe that when you come to this table, the Holy Spirit is about His work of applying the love and grace of God to your life. Maybe the work uh, of being a Christian has weighed you down, right? Maybe, maybe all of those ideas are a little uh, troublesome, even. But you can come to the table, and you can eat this bread, and you can drink this cup, and you can proclaim with your body, with this physical act, the death of Jesus until he comes. You know, I think coming to the table or, or these, these physical acts are something we can all do, something we can all do, regardless of whether you, had, you sinned this week, regardless of whether or not prayer is difficult for you, regardless of whatever's happening in your life. Coming to the table is, is a physical act that we can do, and, and Jesus gave us this physical act as a kind of grace, I think that no matter where you are, no matter what you're struggling with, whether if you're just like me when I was in seminary and you're, you're just, you feel unmoored and you feel like life is a little bleak, you can come to the table and you can get these kind of, and you can, you can get a picture of the divine. You can get the grace of God. You can feel the love and goodness of God. You know, baptism works the same way, I think. Baptism is meant to be a physical sign, a reminder that God is with you. You can look back on your baptism and stand strong upon the knowledge that God acted upon and with you on that day, and that you are not a part, and you are now a part of this thing called the church, and that nothing can separate you from his love, right? This is how baptism is meant to work. This is what baptism and communion do. They are, they are physical signs where God is at work, that both remind and help us to encounter him. So can you come to the table this morning? That's the question. With an, with an open and an expectant heart. With maybe whatever faith you can bring to it. Because I feel like part of the struggle that's occurred in the evangelical church, because we call these things ordinances, and we've maybe, and particularly communion, we've kind of relegated it to the side of what we do. Part of the thing is we don't have much, we don't, we don't activate our faith very much when we receive communion. It's just like, okay, this again, right? This is what we do. But we don't see it for what it is, right? We don't see it as, as something that Jesus himself, on the night he was taken into custody, right before he was crucified, said to the disciples, this is my body. This is my blood. We don't think of it that way because we've kind of relegated to the, to the, to the, to the corner of, of our Christian faith. And what I will tell you is, it is just as significant in the life of the church as singing songs or listening to a pastor preach or prayer. It's just as significant. 
I don't know if it's higher or lower, but it's just as significant. And God, it, God has promised to be just as present to us in, in these two rituals of communion and baptism as he has promised to be in our singing and in our praying and our, in our hearing of the word. He has promised to be just as present in these things. And so today the question is, can you come? Can you come to the table? And when you come to the table, can you bring whatever you have, whatever you have? It might not be a lot. It might not, it might not feel like uh, you're a spiritual giant. It might not feel like you uh, deserve much of anything. But can you bring what you've got to the table this morning? And can you, when you activate your faith, open yourself to the possibility that God wants to work in and through you as we receive together? You know, by receiving at the table of the Lord, we participate in Christ's death and proclaim his death till he comes. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11. And it's what, and it's what Paul says uh, in our teaching text for today, that, that by receiving together, we participate in the death and the body of Jesus. And I just want us all to understand today that as we come to the table, we can come to the table in our worst times come to the table in our best times. We can come to the table when we doubt. All, uh, all I ask and, and all I think God asks is, is that we be like that father who brought his child to Jesus. And Jesus asked him in Mark uh, 9, do you want, uh, uh, do you have faith that your child will be healed? And the father responds, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief, right? And Jesus goes, that's perfect. That's enough. I think that's, all, that's the only place we need to be at this morning. That's the only place we need to be at. Lord, I believe, but goodness, help my unbelief, right? Do your legs work? Can you come to this table and can you activate your faith together with us as the body of Christ? And so, today, we're going to receive communion together. And it's important that we, when we as we receive communion together, uh, that we do it This is what Jesus, and this is what Paul says uh, to this Corinthian church that were just a couple chapters later, this Corinthian church that was wayward, this Corinthian church that was were going to demon feasts, right, at the Rotary down the street, the, this, this community that was messed up in all kinds of ways. Right before he gives them these instructions about communion, he says, in the following directions, I have no praise for you, for your for your meetings do more harm than good, right? This is what he says just a few this just a few passages earlier. But yet he invites him to the table nonetheless. And he says in verse 23, For I received from the Lord that which I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This is the, the, cup, is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you as humble and needy. We come before you in need of your love, your grace, your goodness. Father, wherever we are this morning, whether we feel capable or whether we feel lost, whether we feel broken or whether we feel strong, whatever we feel today, would you work in our hearts as we come to the table together this morning? 
would you uh, be with us as we receive? Would you help us to activate our faith and believe that you are at work in this very moment, participating with us as we receive uh, at the table together? Jesus, we love you, and we pray all of this in your name. Amen and amen. Now, before we receive, we just always want to say that we practice an open communion, which is a way of saying, like I said earlier, that we don't believe that any pastor, any priest, or any church hierarchy controls this thing called communion, but rather that it is simply the gathered assembly as the Holy Spirit works in and amongst us that makes this thing valuable. So all we ask is that you can be like that uh, as you come to the tables, that you can at least be like that Father. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. That all we ask is that you, you follow Jesus with your life or you're attempting to follow Jesus with your life. And if you're doing that, you can come to this table. You can come to this table with us. All right? All right. So the band's gonna play a little bit. Uh, Jocelyn will start singing here in a, in a minute and uh, we'll receive communion together. You can receive at the table or you can take it back uh, to your chair for a moment of reflection. Uh, you can stand and worship after you've received or uh, you can sit quietly. Whatever you need to do and, and you can find a place of communion with the Lord and uh, after we've all received and we've had a moment, uh, I'll come up and close service. All right? All right. So uh, now the table is open.